Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Right, who wants to hear about a naked balloon performer? He used to be my boss and I didn't know about that side of him. British actor, broadcaster and now baker Martin Clark has been back in Hong Kong for a few weeks. He was head of Radio 3 at the time of the handover, but first came here in 1983. I caught up with him at Cafe 8 at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. First I asked him where he was on the night of the Hong Kong handover on June the 30th, 1997. All over the place, all over the place. I was like live broadcasting, I was inputting to the studio. It was me and a technician just wandering around all night. Uh, during the day, we, we, we're now here, we're at Star Ferry, just across from Tamar, where the whole thing took place. And during the day, I would wander around doing Vox Pops, because we forget how, how tense that day was, because we just didn't know what was going to happen at midnight. We just had no idea. Nobody knew. Actually, at midnight, this is going to be a long story, but at, at midnight, um, we'd found ourselves up at the Fringe Club. The, the, the Fringe Club was a good place to be, because it was a mix of uh, different nationalities, a lot of Chinese people, a lot of a few expats and uh, sort of artists cultural community and uh, we had the telly on and we were watching the, 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 the situation from relayed from Tamar live feed midnight came and nobody knew what to do the, the star ferry chimes went I was there with, with the technician and with all these people in the fringe club and, and I've, I started clapping I started a round of applause because it was just that incredible tension of not knowing what was going to happen. Was that sort of a British reaction? <laughs> no, I think I'm a bit theatrical. I think, you know, as a man of the theatre. <laughs> I don't know why I clapped. Uh, you know, perhaps I felt it had been an achievement that, 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 that it ha had actually happened. Everyone else started clapping, you know, and it broke the atmosphere. So after that, I roamed around the night to see what the mood was, and everyone was quite positive. I came on the MTR, the MTR ran all night, back to Kowloon Tong Studios. And as I walked up from Kowloon Tong Station, all the PLA trucks were coming from under the tunnel. They were coming through to Tamar. Open trucks with the PLA soldiers standing to attention. A whole convoy of them in the pouring rain. It was quite a spectacular sight. I was just me on my own witnessing this, these, this convoy coming through. But during the day, yes, I was here. I was around the Star Ferry, just doing box shots with people. And uh, I saw Chris Patton, and he waved to me, because I'd done lots of programming with Chris Patton. And, and uh, then, of course, they they'd built this stadium, this temporary stadium there, uh, when you know, Prince Charles was there and Patton and Brian Blessed was doing the, the English voice. Um. What? Gordon's alive! <laughs> That's the one. And uh, it was pouring rain, pouring rain. They had these plastic seats, and of course the seats filled up with water, so you were sitting in two inches of water, and you couldn't get your umbrella up because the neighbours all had their umbrella. It was, it was really, really, really wet. And I don't suppose anybody noticed the speeches and that sort of thing. It was so uncomfortable sitting there. And then Chris Patton sort of gets on the Britannia and, 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 and sailed off into the sunset. So it was, it was a moving moment, and, and in terms of Hong Kong heritage, you know, I, I, I thought I had a good view of it from, from lots of different sides, from multicultural sides and uh, and seeing everything going on it was uh, that was great and that's what you know being in broadcasting about you 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 know about running hong kong heritage you do actually take part in a lot of events that are going on the other one was 1989 you know the the june the 4th tiananmen square i happened to be on air in the evening i was i was doing an evening program a live program in the evening where we had music and guests coming in and um you know the, the the PLA troops had opened fire in the daytime, and 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 a lot of young people, a lot of students, who had been in Tiananmen Square, just ran for their lives and got on planes and things and came back. And they were arriving in Hong Kong in the evening. And as it happened, I was doing a forum with some 
Chinese people, English speakers, and they were able to act as interpreters. So when these students came back, uh, they, we got them straight into the studio and they were giving first-hand accounts of what they'd seen that morning as the, as the, as the PLA troops had opened fire. You know, they are talking about the bodies they'd seen and the rushing to hospital and the, the terror and the blood and that sort of thing. So, it was, you know, that was a very moving moment, which you can get when you're actually being a radio broadcaster. You know, we're actually sort of relaying it directly. Chris Patton, you know, was governor, and he loved broadcasting, so, you know, I, I did a lot of his media stuff. He lived in Government House, and we lived in mid-levels at the time, and I was due to do, there's a programme called Governor's Choice, which he, he, he would just choose his own music. That's kind of stuff he liked doing, you know, and I'd do lots of things also with his wife, Lavender, just, you know, I'd go down there and record things in Government House with him. Got to know him quite well. Chris Patton was Governor, Lavender Patton, she was involved in a lot of organisations, wasn't she? So, I mean, was it a show about that, or...? No, I think it was one of those, um, one-to-one programs or the pleasures hours or you know sort of desert island discs type thing where we just talked about her personal life you know where she was educated and how she'd met her husband and what it was like living as a governor's wife in hong kong and the public pro and the public duties and that sort of thing the family you know she had three daughters so they decided to send her to local schools didn't they they didn't sort of send her to boarding school or that sort of thing you know they were they had sort of good liberal attitude i think towards governorship and uh, she played an active role in that so it was just one of those personal anecdote type program but uh, i was due to record a music program with chris patton and he, he rang me up from my flat he said uh, he said you live in mid-levels so I, I said yes he said look um i need to talk to you about some of the music he said but i haven't got time so can you come down to government house and, and we'll go over in my car to the studio in kowloon tong i said all right so i walked down and he said yeah hop in the car you know we'll talk about it on route so i'm a bit busy at the moment so you know we, we had a sort of um convoy from government house to rthk where you know everybody the police all sort of signal ahead so all the traffic lights on route had been turned to green for us you know never mind the traffic in kowloon or anything like that so we got we got from government house to rthk in about seven minutes i think you know and, <laughs> and i had sort of established what music he was going to play and straight into the studio from there do you remember what sort of music he liked Pop music, yeah, yeah. No, he liked a, a complete range. You know, he was, he was well up on contemporary pop music. I mean, both, you know, classical as well. So when you came from England to Hong Kong in 1983, you'd had a holiday here. It, we came for a holiday and just loved it so much. And, and at the time, we'd sold our house and put stuff in storage just coincidentally. And I thought, well, actually, we had nothing to pick to go back for. And loved it so much. And it was November, the weather was beautiful. And immediately got work in teaching English as a foreign language in several language clubs along Nathan Road. And so that was good. You know, within a couple, matter of a couple of weeks, I was earning more here than I'd been earning in the UK. And what had your job been in the UK? Uh, that's a story. I was touring as an act, as a comedy, but we had a comedy group, which we did Edinburgh Fringe. We did a lot, we did a lot of TV as well. We'd had quite a run of success in mainstream tv and we were famous for the balloon dance which was three guys dancing naked with only balloons to cover their bits and you know you know what balloons are like when they, you know they let them go they sort of fizzle and you know so there was lots of sort of things that went wrong with it what well, went wrong in speech marks you know and, and we had done that on Chris Tarrant, who had had a very successful kids' Saturday morning live show called Kids Boys. At the success of the kids' show, he got an adult show called OTT Over the Top, which was late night Saturday night live on a similar theme. So he booked us for the opening night. So we did this... Balloon dance. Balloon, yes. And it just caused a sensation. It just hit all the tabloids. It was a massive sensation. And the balloon dance was to what music? 
Tifa two cha cha cha. We were dancing in a sort of routine to a cha 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 routine. Uh, you, yes, oh. you can actually find a clip if you look very, very carefully. <laughs> you want to see me naked? Well, actually, I'm naked now, but the, 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 the <laughs> listeners won't. Listeners won't know that, will they? I'm talking with Martin Clark, who I first got to know 20 years ago as the head of Radio 3. He's living back in Suffolk, works now as a baker, which we'll talk about in a little while. But uh, uh, Martin first came to Hong Kong in 1983, so would have covered many of the main news events in the lead-up and beyond the handover. So in 1983, when you arrived in Hong Kong, it didn't take you long to get involved in theatre. That's right, because I had worked in theatre. Well, you know, I had ex- professional experience as an actor, performer. We'd also, also as part of that, we'd done Blackadder. Um, Rowan Atkinson had started this sort of weird series called Blackadder, which you know he'd sort of filled in the gaps in the, in the history of the royal family in the Middle Ages, and did a started series called Blackadder. So he booked us for one of the, ep- the second episode. Actually, I had the role. We, oh, we were an Egyptian troupe. That's right. And Baldrick had booked this troupe of travelling Egyptian actors to entertain the king when he came back. And I think Rowan Atkinson's plan was to... I had a dagger. For the play we were doing, I had a dagger. And Rowan Atkinson's plan was to replace my retractable dagger with a real dagger. So, you know, we didn't think much of that. But it's now... You know, it was 1982... Uh, and and even kids, young kids, will know about Blackadder. It just hit a sort of cultural pulse, uh, and it's, you know, just went from strength to strength to strength, and just will never be forgotten. So, having done those sort of things, I acted here. You know, there was a theatre company set up called Chungying Theatre. Chungying. Chungying, Chinese English, and uh, it was a mixture of young Hong Kong Chinese. And there was a sort of guila part, which which they employed me for. The director at that time was Bernie Goss, a very dynamic theatre director. And this was at a time in Hong Kong's history where Deng Xiaoping and Margaret Thatcher were just about drawing up plans for the handover, for the joint declaration. They were drawing up a basic law. And it was just hitting public consciousness, I suppose, that Hong Kong was going to be handed back from a British colonial system to a Chinese system. It was hitting public consciousness. And so this play was written by Hardy Choi, who's still a teacher in Chartin Theatre, to reflect Hong Kong Chinese people's views on politics in relation to the future handover. You know, it was only just hitting public consciousness. It wasn't a big issue. There was still a long way to go. So the Guaylo part that I played, they're, they're all Hong Kong actors, and they're all, all done in Chinese and English. And we toured it all over the new territories. We did community centres, village halls, schools. We did schools. We'd go out in a van and do it two shows a day in schools. You know, this is the sort of thing I was used to doing. I had been touring a lot in the UK. And it was fantastic doing it with a, with a, with a Chinese group and to do something that was political. It, you know, it was the first time that I think people were talking about the politics, uh, of, of the political change that would actually be implied by this handover. So the play was called? I Am Hong Kong. And... It was about young Hong Kong people. They were, they were optimistic about the change. They felt that they were going to establish an identity for themselves at last. So they, were, you know, they were no longer going to be part of a British colonial system. They were going to establish a Hong Kong identity for themselves. 
which would relate to the mainland. And, and I played the sort of token guano, you know, in the early bits I would play the part of a colonial officer who would be ruling them and governing them. And then sort of as the play developed and it went into more modern Hong Kong, I played the part more of a sort of expatriate businessman who, who was doing business here and just, and just taking part in Hong Kong rather than controlling it and, and, and ruling it. One of the significant points that they no longer felt they had to sing the British National Anthem, that, you know, if, if there was events going on, as, as it happened at that time, you know, the British National Anthem was still the National Anthem of Hong Kong. And I think the Hong Kong Chinese, quite right, were sort of reluctant to sing it because they didn't really identify with uh, the Queen or anything like that, even though it was a British colony. And instead, they, they wanted to sing, there's a Chinese folk song called In a Faraway Place, beautiful folk song. And they started to sing that because that represents their cultural roots in China. That represents their family far in a faraway place, but not the China of the Communist Party. They, they, they looked back at their family roots be before communism took over. That's where they saw the real China. That's why they sang this folk song. And I can't sing the words. I had to learn it because, because the, 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 you know, the Guayla part ended up singing it as well along with them, quite rightly so. Uh, no, so I'm going to hum it. It goes... Da, 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 La, da, 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 La, da, And, and moving, and, and I think summed up what they were feeling at the time. And as I come back now, in 2018, and as I've talked to other Chinese friends who are involved in the culture and the arts in Hong Kong, yes, there is an active politics for young Hong Kong Chinese, but it doesn't seem to have the hope anymore that those Hong Kong Chinese did in 1984. You did this play, I Am Hong Kong, and so you went from teaching into radio, or...? I was doing both. <laughs> I was doing everything. I was doing everything. We were doing that show in the day. In the evening, I'd still carry on, perhaps, my English teaching, you know, in, in Nathan Road and Jim Choi. And then I started getting freelance shifts overnight at RTHK. We had presenters on overnight then. We weren't automated in those days. So that's how I started, the graveyard shift. <laughs> Two o'clock till six o'clock in the morning. So what sort of programme was it? Oh, you're just just a, just a music programme. Although I did creative things with it, I enjoyed it, you know, and I, I wasn't one to sit there playing discs. I, I sort of did creative things. I used to put in sound effects and, and, and poetry and, and dif different things to segue between the music, just to have a bit of fun with it. And it was probably, you know, doing that that actually got me the, the contract with RTHK. So, so I'd do that, you know, I'd, do, I'd, I'd be touring with Chungying in the daytime. I'd, Oh, I was also teaching English with the... This was the year of the Vietnamese boat people, of course, and they were flooding into Hong Kong. Old stories connected with that. So I got a job with um, UNHCR, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, teaching English to the boat people as they arrived. I think there was a, there was a, there was a camp in Sham Shui Po. It's difficult to remember where it might have been there. It wouldn't be recognisable now. 
Um, so were they in there, all those Nissan huts? They were all sorts. It was a ramshackle old setup with, you know, rat infested and leaky old sort of setup. It, it was quite moving because the Vietnamese were nice people, you know, they, they were lovely people and, and you had sort of basic facilities, maybe a chalkboard and a bit of chalk. And, you know, you were just trying to teach English so we could get them out, get them into a better life, you know, move them on to a Western country where they could speak, that use their English and that sort of thing. That was the plan behind that. So, uh, you know, I'd be doing that as well as doing Chunging and going into RTHK and that sort of thing. And we were living on Chung Chow through, through various contacts. We got, we got a, a flat in Chung Chow. And I get the, the early morning ferry back at 7 o'clock in the morning against the flow of commuters as they were walking to the ferry. I'd be walking away from the ferry. You know, we had the whole island to ourselves. It was the, I remember those days. The island was quiet and we'd go off to beaches and things like that. It was a lo- lovely, lovely days. So who was your governor in the early 1980s? Edward Ude. Yes, and of course, Edward Ude, poor man, uh, died of a heart attack up in Beijing. And that was a big thing, another big event to cover, you know, because he was a serious governor. I think the Chinese had respect for him. He spoke Mandarin. He could he could relate to the Mandarin speakers in Beijing. He took Hong Kong seriously and understood the issues that connected Hong Kong and China, I think. And that was a tragedy. That heart attack was a tragedy. I remember it happening and us uh, covering it. That was a big blow to the development of the basic law and the joint declaration because from then on, I think the relationship between Hong Kong, Britain and China deteriorated. David Wilson, really not a heavyweight, I don't think. And Chris Patton, great guy, public figure, but just didn't speak Chinese, didn't really understand the issues. It was, it was an odd, perhaps compared to someone like Edward Ude, it was an odd choice of governor. It was a, you know, it was a controversial choice. You know, he, he was a person that he was, you know, a high profile figure. He could run for us, he could advise people, he had good views on things like that, but perhaps didn't understand the, the delicate nature of the relationship between Hong Kong and the Chinese. And uh, to an extent felt, if we played the cards like this, then the Chinese would bequeath democracy on us sort of out, out of, uh, you know, out of kindness, you know, you know, and that, you know, that definitely wasn't going to happen. And, and, and he'd, he'd, he'd put um, various things in place to do with the sort of legislative council functional constituents and that sort of thing to try and create an avenue of more democracy but there was no bargaining chip and China just threw it all out and that's the nearer we got so looking back on it well actually we knew it at the time that really that's not the way to deal with China so with China's almighty influence in the, in the world economy I'd like to think that it could make Hong Kong a sort of the jewel that it used to be I think they could make democracy happen in Hong Kong or more democracy happen in Hong Kong they could be more liberal if there were gay games, for instance, they, you know, they could be more liberal in same-sex relationships, you know, which is going on in the rest of the world. Everyone else is doing it, you know. Uh, I think, you know, China has an opportunity with Hong Kong to demonstrate that it can do that and still maintain its one-party system, fine. You know, but there, there is, there's a jewel here that they can actually use to say, yes, we can do that as well. We can do that as well as run on our, our, our one country, one system, you know. I think that, you know, there is an opportunity here which wouldn't harm them in any way whatsoever and do them an awful lot of good. Going back to your theatre, you said you were in I Am Hong Kong. And what other theatre did you do throughout the years you were here? Well, at that time, there was an actor's rep. I met Theresa Norton there, Sheila Cullen, Suzanne Vale. And we were doing more expat-type theatre with that one. Lindsay McAllister and the Youth Arts Foundation. One of the projects that I did that got me into musical theatre was a project with the Academy for Performing Arts, the APA, and Lindsay McAllister was directing Sweeney Todd. 
sometimes Sweeney Todd. Now, I wasn't very familiar with musicals at that stage. In fact, I didn't like them very much. <laughs> but Sweeney Todd is one musical that, you know, verges on opera, really. It was just such a... Such a Are you a bit of a snob, Martin? Yes. Not so much now. <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do anything now. Yeah, Sweeney Todd was such a moving story. And, um, what, eating humans in pies? Yes. I'll go into it if you like. Um, the, the morals, you know, the, 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 of course, the moral morality or lack of morality of, of Sweeney Todd himself. What I like is it, it, was, it was the boy who was the only one who had any moral turpitude and he was the one that exposed the evil that was going on. Everybody knew that they were murdering people and making them into pies, but no one would do anything about it until this boy sort of saw it happening and expose the whole thing. I played the part of Judge Turpin. Judge Turpin is this awful, self-flagellating, evil, wicked person who wants to have his way with Joanna, who's only like a 15-year-old girl who he looks after and wants to marry. Uh, and there's one scene in there where he, you know, he has to sort of take his t- top off and whip himself, you know, which, which is not... A lot of people don't want to do. They often cut that bit from amateur shows. Very difficult to sing, you know. I, I, to, learn those, to learn those songs, you know, they're saying they're more operatic than... Uh, than, than musical. So one of your choices for this programme is the song Joanna. Yes, that's, that's, that, that's the song he sings when, when, when he's sort of trying to chastise himself to, get, to try and get rid of his lusty urges for this sort of underage girl who is his, is his ward and, and, and punish her. So it, it's pretty sort of nasty, nasty stuff. Joanna, Joanna, so suddenly a woman the light behind your window, it penetrates your gown. Joanna, Joanna, the sun, I see the sun through your... No! Down! Tell him of Deliver me! Down, down, down. Joanna, Joanna, I watch you from the shadows. You sigh before your window and gaze upon the town. And now, even now, you know, I, I do sing in shows. I, I, do, I direct now, so, I, you know, I, I've directed a, a musical last year called The Drowsy Chaperone, which was a phenomenal success, one of the funniest musicals. You, you call me a musical snob, and, I, I'm, I, you know, I might be. But that one, and Sweeney Todd, and The Drowsy Chaperone, if, you know, if you get a chance to, to see it or produce it, it's, it's just the funniest, funniest musical ever. And that went down a storm, you know, that was, that was some standing ovations and everything. And I, and, and I direct the local panto. I've just inherited the local panto, you know, which is causing huge political upshake at the moment, you know. Just in the village? In the, in the, in the local town. How come? Oh, because the previous directors left under a cloud and left us sort of bereft with nothing, really, so we've got to start rebuilding it right from scratch again. You start off on this uh, graveyard shift where so many... And it's also sometimes an opportunity for people to, you know, let their music be heard or otherwise, you know, their quirky DJ effects or whatever uh, it is. It's, it's, it's often the starting point for many, many broadcasters. But when I knew you, you were head of Radio 3. That was in the, the late 1990s, and there were two things. First of all, me joining to do Hong Kong Heritage and uh, also subsequently you gave me uh, the chance to go uh, in the run-up to December 1999 to Macau to interview a whole bunch of people there for that handover. 
I thought that was interesting, and I think that was my philosophy as head of Radio 3. I just want, I felt I wanted to do stuff that was off the beaten track a bit, or wasn't getting mainstream attention, but that still affected local people. I've, I felt the Macau thing, I know Macau was practically given back to China many, many, many years ago commercially. You know, they were running it, and Portugal had very little interest in it. But, but nevertheless, you know, there was their handover two years after ours, and, and uh, I felt it deserved more of a profile than it was actually given. I thought it was a significant time, and, it, you know, in terms of our handover as well, it was interested to compare the two and and the, the people you interviewed then you know we're, we're interesting people you know just not the sort of people you normally hear on english radio in hong kong and uh, it was just something a bit different i do other programs a, a travel program you know at one stage we were looking for sponsors we were that was the time when the bbc were going in for more sponsored programs and we were modeling ourselves on them and i managed to get a sponsor you know i got hong kong telecom i think to sponsor a travel program which, of course, I had to produce, didn't I, myself, you know. And that meant sort of going off to all sorts of exotic places to do, to do links. It was all stuff that was related to, the, to Hong Kong travellers. Again, I used to do offbeat things rather than just go to glamorous resorts. But, you know, sometimes you do that. Cafes Pacific would often sponsor a flight and then you'd get a hotel to sponsor you and, and you could do a feature about saf oh, safari parks in Thailand, I did. But I also did low-budget things. You know, I caught a double-decker bus to Dongguan when they were building the highways of, you know, north of Guangzhou. And, and uh, I just thought, well, what can you do that's cheap? You know, oh, we can get on a double-decker bus and go to Dongguan. Now, Dongguan might not be the most exotic, beautiful location in the world, but there were bits of it that those days that were actually interesting. You know, it was an interesting weekend break and didn't cost much money. So we had another programme called Action Desk. Um, I think Liz Case was doing the lunchtime programme. And um, I decided to introduce an Action Desk on the Tuesday, uh, uh, whereby we'd fill the support studio with producers, me and a couple of others, and people could ring in about anything. They could ring in about anything, any query, any problem, anything they wanted to know, and we'd find a solution to it in 45 minutes. And, and that also follows on from... Ralph Pixton, um, open line. Yes, uh, except Ralph didn't have producers. That was a bit sort of expatriate-oriented, you know. Which, again, we tried to get away from that. You know, we, we, we knew that the majority of our listeners were probably not native English speakers. You know, there were a lot of overseas Chinese would be listening, Filipinos listening, different nationalities, Indians. You know, we were doing programmes for Indians specifically. We developed the, the Mabu High programme for Filipinos with Vilma Gardner. You know, a lot of our programming was done specifically for non-expats although we've always criticised for being expat-oriented, but um, I think, you know, over my day, um, we, we, we tried to, you know, we pulled away from that. Well, choice of music, perhaps, was more international. But it was also important, of course, to, to be independent. And our director of broadcasting was Chung Man Yi, the dynamic Chung Man Yi. And what a treat it was to go to the weekly editorial meetings with her. She would just rant and rant and rant. I mean, about a dozen of us, of different, you know, heads of different stations and news departments, would all sit there like meek and mild men, not daring to look up and catch her as she was ranting and ranting. But she had, she had huge vision, though. You know, she, she was a dynamic person, uh, the sort of person that you sort of miss now in Hong Kong, I think, because she had a confident and positive eye on what where Hong Kong could go and what RTHK's role was as, as an independent observer of, of a democratic country where you you know you you would you would take the government to task for doing wrong things and it's great to see that that's still happening on certainly on radio 3 as I've been here listening to one or two programs now in in uh, Suffolk you've had a, a slight change of career I'm a baker. I run a little bakery. Uh, I make artisan bread. I make sourdoughs and wholemeal breads and granary breads and rye, sourdough rye and that sort of thing. And um, 
I sell it through farm shops, farmers markets, pubs and cafes, that sort of thing. It's a fantastic thing to do in that baking bread sort of puts you in the heart of the community. Everybody's got an opinion on bread. Everybody likes to talk about bread. And the people I've met through baking bread has just been phenomenal. But it also provides you with a routine to your life. And it does, you know. You, a sourdough starter is something that you have to feed every couple of days. You know, you can't, you can't just walk away from it. Uh, I've gone to a lot of trouble to actually with my sourdough starter while I've been away. I had to dry it. I had to sort of dry it and, and crumble it and, and then freeze it, you know. So, uh, so hopefully that'll be all right when I get back. With your sourdough and pantos. <laughs> and your politics. And your politics. It's a socialist bakery. We all gather round the fire and discuss Karl Marx and <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn. Martin Clark there. Who knew there was so much politics in Panto? Next week, I take a tour of the beautiful exhibition of Export Silver at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum on Pier 8, which is on until the end of February. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>